We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. My guest on this episode, Andrew McCarthy, is a film actor, television director, New York Times bestselling author, and acclaimed travel writer. More than that, though, his career has made an indelible cultural footprint in the pop culture zeitgeist. Is that the word? I've been wanting to use that word for ages, and this is my big opportunity. So here we go. And he was in films back in the 80s like St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Less Than Zero. And he became part of a young group of very famous movie actors that were known as the Brat Pack. It was a title that he and his fellow 80s stars actually loathed at the time. I actually thought it was kind of affectionate and fun, and I liked that it was a takeoff on the Rat Pack, but apparently so many of the actors at the time, including Andrew, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall... Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Judd Nelson, just all of them, incredibly, incredibly talented actors, but so many of them felt stigmatized by this Brat Pack label that it actually drove a wedge between a lot of them. And what's really sad about that is that they really made an amazing ensemble cast. And I know that they weren't all in every single movie, but they were just a brilliant ensemble. I mean, if you haven't seen St. Elmo's Fire or The Breakfast Club, or Pretty in Pink, or any of these movies that a lot of them appeared in, including Andrew, you have to see these movies, because these movies are iconic. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s, and even in the 90s, like if you came of age kind of in the late part of the 20th century, these movies are a part of, we all have like amazing memories that are tied to these movies, you know? And so many movies that Andrew McCarthy was in are tied to fun, introspective, coming of age, amazing memories. And I think that's what makes his career and a lot of the other actors from that time, what makes their careers so special is when you can tie a memory to a particular movie. To me, that's an incredible gift to give to humanity. Even if it's not an Oscar winning movie, even if it's something that's just really poignant or really funny or even really silly. I mean, he went on to make some really quirky movies like Mannequin and Weekend at Bernie's. And I can tell you right now that every guy I spoke to about Andrew McCarthy, the first thing out of their mouth was, oh, Weekend at Bernie's, man, Weekend at Bernie's. I mean, because that's the gift that you give people is they have that amazing memory. But I will say that in speaking to Andrew, he loves the craft of acting, didn't like the spotlight and the red carpet and the photographers and all that fanfare so much. And he actually struggled quite a bit with it in his younger years. What's interesting is that he said, you know what, I'm going to leave the U.S., I'm going to go to Spain, I'm going to take this pilgrimage where I'm going to walk 500 miles across Spain, I'm going to walk the Camino de Santiago Trail 
in Spain by myself, and it really gave him just a feeling of feeling good in his own skin. And he then went on to write his New York Times bestselling memoir, Brat, an 80s story, a couple of years back, which really goes into detail about his childhood, his family dynamics, his sudden and extreme rise to fame in the 80s, and how his career kind of unfolded over the decades. And it really came full circle in a way. And what's interesting is his new book, Walking with Sam, is about revisiting the Camino de Santiago Trail in Spain with his son Sam, who was now a young adult, and how it really helped them to redefine and strengthen their own father-son bond. And it also helped Andrew to revisit his relationship with his now late father and kind of piece all of that together. And I think that that's really a beautiful thing. And Sam is actually a successful actor in his own right. He starred alongside Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini in the Netflix hit Dead to Me, which was one of my favorite series. I'm so sad that it's over. But in any event, we cover a whole slew of interesting topics from movie stardom to writing to directing to spiritual and emotional topics to family. And I think you're going to find some really interesting and cool surprises, not just in my questions, but in Andrew McCarthy's answers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this beautiful and interesting interview with Andrew McCarthy. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is in the prologue of your book, Walking with Sam, you talk about your first time walking the, it's called the Camino de Santiago Trail in Spain, correct? Camino de Santiago, yeah. Yes, okay. So the first time you took that walk, which is clear across the country of Spain, you did it as kind of like a spiritual rebalancing. And you said that it was kind of like, the extreme and sudden fame that happened in your 20s kind of, it almost seemed like you needed something that was going to rebalance your spirit. But you said something to the effect of you didn't feel that you earned your accomplishments at the time. Why didn't you earn your accomplishments? Good question. Oh, <laughs> A, I didn't know it was a spiritual rebalancing. I'd never phrased it like that, but I think that's actually what happened. And I, I was aware that I needed, I knew I needed something, I guess. And I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't sure quite how I ended up at the Camino, but I guess I was young and I became very successful very quickly. And I felt in a certain way that I just, I suppose now it's called an imposter syndrome or something. Yes. Which um, Now there's a buzzword for everything. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I guess I just felt unprepared, certainly also. And so it, so I guess I, I just felt like un unseen in a certain way. I was seen in a certain way, and I wasn't sure that's who I who I was. And when you're young, particularly, you're not sure who you are yet. And so to be sort of seen and pegged in a certain way, it was I was like, wait, wait, uh, this isn't quite accurate of who I am. You know, okay. Once the Brat Pack term came about and stuff, that it was sort of I was sort of lumped in with a group of people that at the, initially we we didn't like. I didn't want to be labeled and stigmatized and pigeonholed, you know, particularly when you're young and when you're an actor, you don't want to be sort of grouped in, to anything. You want to be an individual. So anyway, initially it was a, a shocking thing. Mm -hmm. oh, the decades since it's become this, you know, iconically affectionate term, the Brat Pack, you know, for, <laughs> for a moment in, you know, pop culture in the 80s, you know, and I've become this sort of avatar for people's youth of a certain generation. But you know, when I was young, I, I became successful. Yeah, I think I just sort of felt like, well, what just happened? And I haven't 
really, I don't even have my feet under me yet. And this stuff's happening. So decades later, you come full circle and you take your eldest son, Sam, to do the same walk with you that you originally did when you were a young man. How old were you when you took this walk across Spain the first time? I was, I was not so young. <laughs> I was, you know, I think in my very early 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah. I sort of survived that early thing of fame and uh, was not sure what I was looking for, really. And I came across a book in a bookstore about the Camino de Santiago, which I'd never heard of. It's just an ancient pilgrimage route across the north of Spain for 500 miles. And I don't know, there was something in that that just spoke to me and I just... I read the book and then like a week later, I said, I'm going to Spain. And I went to Spain to do that. And I wasn't ever, I wasn't sure why, but uh, it, I did find it a life-changing experience. I think in one way, you know, I mentioned in this book here, uh, there was a moment about halfway into the walk when I was in a field of wheat and I just sort of had this sobbing tantrum. I, I had a revelation of like how much fear had been so dominant in my life in a way that I didn't realize before. And uh, it was quite a liberating moment. And that sort of changed my place in the world. Interesting. So now you take your son. How old was he at the time? He was 19. Yeah, when we went. He only went a year and a half ago. He was 19. What, I'm sure you regaled him with, with stories of when you when you did this for the first time, when he was growing up, right? Well, I tried not to regale because nothing more boring than, uh, as my daughter calls them, oh, here comes a dad story. Uh, so I tried not to regale too much about it. But I, I did. They they had known for their whole lives occasionally, you know, I mentioned the Camino and how sort of big experience it was. And everyone I know that have, I've encouraged people, many people over the years to go do it. And everyone who has done it has had a, also had a big life-changing experience at it. So I'd recommend it to anyone in a moment of sort of, transition in their life. But, you know, my relationship with my father ended basically when I was 17 years old and left the house. And it just sort of that was the end of our relationship. And I didn't want that to happen with my kids. And so I wanted to figure out a way to transition our relationship to one of two adults, as it were, as, as opposed to, you know, the dominant parent talking to the kid, but to sort of be equals in the world, you know, and so I thought this trip might be a way to sort of begin that transition to happening. And uh, it was a, yeah, it was a big experience for the both of us. I could see a transformation in him from the beginning of the book to to the end of the book. But do you feel like he got something profound out of the experience? Yeah. I mean, on day two, like, you know, he said, dad, what's the point of this effing walk? And he didn't say effing, you know, and <laughs> on the last day, <laughs> He said, Dad, this is the only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. So, yeah, I mean, he had a big experience, you know, and I knew he would because it's hard not to. It's impossible not to. That kind of sheer attrition of walking day after day, all day, there's something profound in walking that happens. But I just knew I had to keep him on the road, you know, <laughs> so he didn't quit. Like, keep him from quitting at the beginning, I knew something would happen, you know. And I had the luxury that you very rarely get with adult children, which was the luxury of time. Usually our kids are running out the door and like, hey, wait a minute, I'll, I'll see you later, you know, and yeah, knew that if I just sort of walked beside him, everything was on the table, you know, for that. Everything way. just starts to come out. Yeah. You sit my son down for a chat and you're not going to get very far, but you get oh. and it all comes out. Yeah. There was something funny that it was at the beginning of the book where you said, you know, I, you know, every young American really gets something profound when they visit Europe for the first time. I really hope that Sam 
has that same profound epiphany and he then turns to you and says, what, how come there are no flaming hot Cheetos in Europe, dad? What's the deal with that? <laughs> yeah. These are the big questions that we need answered, you know, um, <laughs> but that just teaches, that was just a sort of an example of expectations are going to lead to disappointment every time, you know, you got to let people have their own experiences. We can lead them and try and have them force an experience of them. And they just, you know, People, A, can feel that and they're going to resist it. And B, they're going to have their own experience of things. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, we have no idea what their experience is going to be, you know. Right. Do you feel like early fame for you was kind of a trauma, like almost like a trauma that you had to overcome and heal from? Or is that just what I got from reading about you and, and reading your memoir and then, you know, kind of having the memoir bleed into this book? Well, you know, trauma is a bit of a big word. There, you know, there are people that do experience real trauma and being famous in the movies in your early 20s doesn't, I don't think, quite qualify as trauma. <laughs> you know, it was life-altering, certainly, and wondrous in many ways, overwhelming, certainly, but I don't think it was traumatic. I did think it took me a long time to sort of recover from it and to sort of come down and sift through all of it to sort of find who I was, because when you're in your early 20s, you're still trying to figure out your place in the world and who you are. And I think that sort of rocked that boat for a while. And early fame certainly altered who I would become. So, but was it traumatic? I think that's a bit, um, you know, I try not to use words like that from that kind of thing. Cause it was, you know, a blessing really. Okay. Yeah. You made another comment. You said that your fame blew up your dynamic with your siblings and mm -hmm. it was never, it was never the same from that point on. How does fame blow up family dynamics exactly? It depends on the family, certainly. Um, some people can bring closer together and you go to your family for security and counsel and things like that. And is it a place of solace? That was just was not, you know, when you're, that was not my experience. You know, my dad was having a hard time in his life the moment I was getting famous. So my fortunes were rising, his were falling, and that was difficult for him. And with my brothers growing up, I was never like the star of the family. You know, my older brother was a star baseball player. The other one was, you know, the smart one. And I was just a little sensitive kid. So suddenly I'm in movies and they're in their early mid twenties. So they're still like, we were just talking about trying to figure out their place in the world. And suddenly their little brother goes and right. is now suddenly American royalty. Cause that's what movie stars are in America's royalty, you know? So I'm now this thing. And I don't know that it ever really uh, recovered from that. Yeah, I think that it's so hard as human beings in general not to experience emotions like jealousy, envy, or the disease of comparison. If my brother is this, does that mean that I'm less? Or can't we just be different and just be on different paths? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to exactly to their experience um, and their feelings, but it certainly altered the way largely because their friends would suddenly go, you know, instead of, oh, that's your little brother, Andy. It's like, your brother's Andy McCarthy from St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, my God. You know, and it's suddenly shocking in that way. And so it's by third person, their experience of me is altered, in this, if you know what I mean. So my particular family wasn't the kind where, you know, you talk about that stuff and you come back and kind of, whoa, I know that must be crazy. What's that feel like? That's crazy. Yeah. You know, that just didn't particularly happen. It didn't happen. Okay. And also, you know, I was such that um, I can't blame them for it. You know, I was, I'm very much a loner in many ways. So, and when that stuff started to happen, instead of going and seeking kind of support and solace, I further isolated and separated myself because I just sort of hunkered down within myself. 
to a degree. So it's, I'm certainly, you know, if there's blame to be added, I'm sure it's mine. Got it. And so now Sam is an actor. He's a working actor. Hmm. He was on the show Dead to Me with Christina Applegate. Um, and your daughter has appeared on Broadway. So everything that I've, again, from everything that I read, it seemed like you were never, you were never quite a hundred percent comfortable in your own skin, like on red carpets in front of the camera, all of that. So did you want to keep your kids away from show business? Did you feel like, well, if this is what they want to do, I'm going to, I'm going to support them and encourage them. Or how did that come about? Hopefully I was more, I was in many ways more at home in front of the camera than anywhere else in certain ways. But um, yeah, I found all the attention in the red carpet of it all very kind of nerve wracking. And, uh, but, you know, I always used to joke that uh, I didn't want my kids to be actors and that, you know, God is cruel and gives us these things. (laughs) But uh, in, in reality, acting saved my life when I was 15. I didn't know I had been cut from the high school basketball team and my mother suggested I try out for the play (laughs) and I don't want to try out for the play. I want to be the point guard, but, you know, uh, but I did. And I was the artful Dodger and Oliver and, you know, and that changed my life. You know, I walked out on stage and suddenly I knew what I was going to be. And I knew it was a profound experience because I told nobody I was mine and uh, I didn't want it to be, um, someone to squash that before it had taken root inside me deep enough. So acting, you know, kind of saved my life when I was 15 in in a very real way. I think when we're teenagers, we have to find something and often it's sports or music. For me, it was acting, you know, and if we don't, we often drift and get ourselves into trouble with, you know, drugs or alcohol or just sort of a drifting despair when we're young. So it's important to find something as a teenager. And I found acting and really it saved me. And so who am I to say if it wasn't if my kids wanted to do that, that they shouldn't, you know, that what they get from seeing me do it is they know it's not a glamorous kind of thing. It's not premieres and red carpets. It, it's you go to work and you figure out how to do it. And then you, and you get up early and you go and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a great job, but it's a job like other jobs. And so it's not perceived as particularly glamorous in my house, but it's a wonderful life and career, but it's, so it's sort of like the family business in a certain way. So why shouldn't yeah, they, yeah. why shouldn't they, you know? And you know, I felt like myself when I acted and still do, you know, after having been away from acting for a long time, I recently went back to it and I felt like myself again when I did it. And if they feel that for them, fantastic. Yeah. Anything that you do where you feel like you're in flow is the right thing to do for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's all, that's all you sort of do as a parent too, is try and follow, help your kids learn to identify what that feels like and then encourage what that feels like. They shouldn't be doing what I tell them to do and what I think would be good for them because A, they're right. not going to like it. And B, that's not right. We should we have to find that ourselves in our lives. So Absolutely. you just want to encourage them to be able to have that that knob in them where they can recognize their fine-tune. Okay, I'm in sync right now. This is what it feels like. And you identify what it feels like and then search for things that help you get in that sync. And okay. that's only you can discover that, right? Yeah. And in the book, Sam kind of is very open with you. He's open with you about smoke smoking cigarettes he's open with you about trying different substances and you sort of try to lend an ear give a little bit of input talk about some of your experiences what is the thought there because you what's the thinking there (laughs) i'm gonna gonna tell you why i'm gonna tell you why because you talk about how in your younger years you self-medicated with drugs and alcohol because you were trying to regulate yourself. Right. And I would imagine that being a loner and being very sensitive and creative 
you didn't quite know how to like emotionally regulate yourself. Right. So now your son is coming to you and he's telling you, I'm trying this, I'm trying that. Like what's going on in your head? Well, of course, the first thing you kick to as a parent is fear um, because the drugs and alcohol almost destroyed me. So you're, of course, afraid for your children in that moment. But then, you, you know, drugs and alcohol are a slippery slope that everyone has to navigate and everyone will experiment with and try and navigate. And to pretend that's not going to happen is foolish and sticking your head in the sand. So, yeah, I just have been honest with my kids at the beginning, it, you know, I've always said, you know, the only thing that can derail your life and it derailed mine is drugs and alcohol. And I'm a broken record. And I go, but you're going to do it. And we have it in your family. So just, you know, know that information will never keep anybody clean and sober. You know, information does not stop people from doing drugs and alcohol. And, you know, most people do experiment with drugs and alcohol and go through a phase and come out fine. You know, it's not it's not the end of the world and it's going to happen. And so you just sort of. A, that I think from someone like me, the react the most important thing is to kind of not react because it's like it react out of fear. Oh my God, you know, and that's what we do. And because fear is all when fear is calling the shots, it's always trouble follows. So, you know, I all I can be I'm very grateful that he would, you know, share with that with me and communicate. And you know, because all you want to do is, you know, with people you love is to be able to communicate and connect. Because when you can communicate, then you can connect and then you have intimacy and then you have a bond. So if that's what's going on and that's what he's thinking about, talk to me about it. Great, okay. You know, and I'm going to respond because obviously, you know, I've had my history. So I have a fearful reaction when you tell me that, but I hear you. And no, I did have some great fun when I did it. So yes, I did. And to lie and say it was all (laughs) You know, but nobody can smell truth and lies better than your kids, right? They say it or not, you know, so it's for them to discover. See, for me, I did smoke cigarettes in my younger years, but I, I never liked alcohol and I was always scared shitless of drugs. So I just never tried them. Like I don't even like to take an aspirin. So I've always taken the route of telling my son, stay away from it, stay away from it. It's garbage. It's poison. It's this or it's this and it's that. And you know, that worked for me. Like my, my father was kind of crazy when he was younger and he said, stay away from it. It's poison. It's terrible. It sucks. And I, I just kind of listened. I don't know, but I guess everybody You're the rare one. Huh? <laughs> You're the rare one. I'm the rare one. I, you know, I don't, but the funny thing is that anytime I've ever been out socially and I say, I don't drink, the first thing people say to me is, oh, are you in AA? I'm like, no, I'm not in AA. <laughs> That's because you, you live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> It happens in LA. It happens in LA. Well, yeah, of course it happens in LA. (laughs) (laughs) I want to actually talk to you quickly about Orange is the New Black, because Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know that you were a director on Orange is the New Black. And that show really is what catapulted Netflix, their original content, like into the stratosphere. Yeah, that Um, was an interesting uh, experience doing that. I I was a friend of mine was one of the producers on it and they couldn't get any directors on it because it was on this thing called Netflix that no one understood what it was. Like, doesn't Netflix mail you DVDs? How they're doing a show. So what's the show going to be on? Well, they're going to stream it. I'm like, Okay, fine, but what what channels are going to be on? You know, no one could understand what was going on and they couldn't get any actors for it because nobody wanted to do like, who's going to see this thing? So I'm like, I'll do it. And so I did a bunch of them. And then suddenly it, and I remember the day I was in the office, the producer's office, when they said, they're going to put them all out on the same day. And I remember saying, 
being the wise one in the room. That's the stupidest idea I ever heard. Right. So I was wrong again. So then, of course, they, they come out and Netflix takes over the world. And, you know, House of Cards and, and Orange is the New Black are the two shows that catapult them to taking right. over the world. And so it was a wonderful, it was an exciting moment to be a part of something like that because it was, it caught everyone, certainly caught me and everyone I know who's involved in it by total surprise that this is, this happened. And uh, those first few years of Orange is New Black were very exciting. You know, and I think it was a very good show till the end, but, you know, after seven years, it, it kind of settles into what it is and it loses that electric spark. But it certainly, uh, for a time, was was quite something. Okay, so you, you get the opportunity. It's sort of like a what the hell moment. Like, why not? And you have no clue what it's going to do. Nobody knew that Netflix was going to become Netflix. So you directed in, I'm, I'm assuming, like the first few seasons? I directed, I, not all of them, but I directed on, you know, several episodes a year on all the seasons. Yeah. Oh, on all the seasons. Okay. Yeah. Just because, you know, when you find people that you like working with, it's nice to just sort of keep and have a legacy with that. And, you know, it's a, you feel part of it. And, you know, I directed, you know, just a few in the last several years of each each season. But it was it's nice to continue to be a part of it and watch the evolution of the actors, for one, and them sort of blossoming out into the world. And yes. Stuff. Yes. Am- amazing to watch their careers just explode. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So the concept of all episodes being released at once, which I understand what you were thinking because you're coming from the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, when that is something that's unheard of. So, but what's so, what was so interesting about it is it gave people an opportunity to, to binge watch the show. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't a thing back then, but to become so engaged in the characters and so engaged in the story, almost like you're watching one long movie. Well, yeah, what the really interesting thing it did was it changed storytelling because it changed into one long thing. There were shows before that, like 24 was one season was the one, an arc of one story. And everybody's like, it's just, you know, and a lot of shows had tried it and failed doing that, you know, doing that over nine months when you see it once a week was very hard to do. And when the shows that did do it where like it was a big deal it was a sort of you know freak factor of, oh it's one story you know yeah. but it changed the way we tell stories in television into this long form of big one big story and uh that's i think its biggest effect that it's had what was your favorite part of directing that show i mean like what, what was your what was your biggest takeaway from that experience directing orange is the new black well, I think working with the actors in that, because they were all at the beginning, most of them were very raw and very green and very new and just thrilled to be there and sort of helping to sculpt that and work with them was was fun and exciting. And to see them discover that, you know, there's a moment in acting um, I talked about, it, I think, in the Brad Pack book about, you know, but, you know, it's one of the things why I was successful when I was so young is because there's a moment, particularly when you're young, you're, the moment of discovery and blossom happens in real time in front of your eyes on screen. And right. it's thrilling to watch. 
and it's brief moments like the sunrise. It's just a moment of flash. It's like, wow, what a day ahead of us. And it's thrilling. And then the day happens. And watching that kind of blossom happen is very, very attractive. Like I look back at some of my early movies and I, you know, I can question some of the acting, but I certainly did have in St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, the moment of just sort of blossoming before your eyes. And that's just deeply attractive to people and people are attracted to that. And I'm not the only ones at it. You know, the ladies in Orange is New Black had it when we were doing that. And you look back at James Dean and, you know, had it in East of Eden and Leonardo DiCaprio or whoever in, you know, what's eating Gilbert Grape. And, you know, you see these, all the actors have it. This moment of, of blossoming is the only word I could think of where that's just so attractive that uh, it's hard to deny. You've made a lot of movies throughout that that part of your career, the acting part of your career, that have made people really happy, that are, are a big part of people's coming of age. Hmm. Some of them have made people laugh. I mean, like my brother, when I was telling him who I was speaking to today, he, the first thing out of his mouth was, oh, we can burn It's like people attach you to certain sure. great memories in their lives. So with that being said, what was your favorite moment on a movie set? Like just your favorite moment that you just can't forget that you loved? Well, you don't always just remember the ones you loved. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about the ones you hated. But <laughs> well, I, I, I have to say, I loved doing all of Weekend at Bernie's for some reason. It was I hadn't gotten an opportunity to do comedy like that. And it was just really fun. And there was so much of that that we just kind of made up as we went along that it was, a, that, and you could feel the excitement of what we were doing. It just felt like this is so stupid and so ridiculous and anything goes and let's just do it. And, you know, and it was, that was fun. The alchemy of the people who'd come together was fun. I enjoyed that very much. I also enjoyed a movie. I loved making St. Elmo's Fire. I thought I was really finally, you know, it's like the third movie I did, third or fourth movie I did. And I felt very, finally comfortable and relaxed and like I was doing what I wanted to be doing and being I mean being able to do what I wanted to do so I felt like and it was like it was working you know and it was you know I look back on that movie and I was very I was having a moment there you know and that was yeah. nice to feel the thing those those two movies stand out for me as, as the pure doing of them was exciting because I felt very present and very alive in the creation of it so St. Almost Fire was very much an ensemble piece. Mm. And then Weekend at Bernie's, it seems like there was a lot of improv in that movie. Mm, yeah, there was. true? There was. You know, it also was a wonderful script by Bob Klein. It was a wonderful thing, you know. So we'd always do the script and then we'd kind of do, okay, do anything you want now, you know. Oh, and, right. you know and some of it got in the movie, some of it didn't. But we'd always sort of do the script because the script was really strong. And then it was just like, go crazy. Right. Know? So I want to talk about your passion for travel because you're also an acclaimed travel writer. And Walking with Sam is kind of a hybrid. It's like a hybrid memoir and travel book. Tell me about your passion for travel and your passion for travel writing. Well, I mean, that all began with the first Camino I walked 25 years ago or 27 years ago now. Because like I was talking earlier, I had this profound experience there. And then so after I walked that first Camino, I kept traveling and alone. I think traveling alone is a important thing and I the farther from home I got the more at home in myself I felt you know and so I kept traveling a lot and I started writing stuff down in little notebooks and not journaling because I didn't like journaling and I thought it was indulgent but I would write down stories and stuff of what happened to me 
you know, I'm an actor. I've said so much bad dialogue. I know good dialogue when I hear it. So I'd write down things people said to me. And right. so, and then I did that for years and years for no intent with it, except just because I enjoyed it. And then one day I did have intent with it. And uh, I met an editor at a magazine and said, you ought to let me write for your magazine. And he said, well, you're an actor, dude. And I said, yeah, but I can tell a story. It's what I do. <laughs> I said, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. He said, that I can live with. And so <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote a travel story and it did well. And I wrote another and another. And uh, it just sort of became this sort of accidental career. And I knew I became successful at it for two reasons. One was that, as we were saying, you know, I knew travel was deeply important and a value, not just something you do for Instagram photos although they didn't exist back then, or for, you know, bragging rights or bucket lists or travel is a meaningful thing that can change who we are in the world. And that had been my experience. And so that was sort of the base underneath every article I would write. I'd never write about that, but that's sort of the feeling underneath it. And I knew that to tell a story and not sell a destination. And that's uh, an important thing. So those two things coupled together made me very successful at travel writing. And I loved it. There was no one who loved travel writing more than I did when I was doing it full time for a number of years. And that always shows. If you love what you're doing, it always shows. So, um, and I felt when I was travel writing the same way that I felt when I was acting when I was young, I just felt a real sense of, oh, there I am. That's me. This is me. So I love that. And then I started feeling again when I was directing, you know, when I was directing The Ladies in Orange is New Black. Again, I sort of thought, this is me. I'm helping these people co- create this thing. And I felt like me doing that. So they're all kind of the same thing in my mind. And then the books grew out of all that, you know. Okay. And you said something. I love this quote in Walking with Sam. Towards the end of your journey, you wrote in the book, You wrote, although the greater world might reasonably argue that this walk has no real purpose, that it achieves no practical goals, and so is of no merit or consequence, there's a growing awareness among us, without being able to quite name it yet, that what we are doing is somehow of importance and meaning. And the reason I love that quote is because in our culture and in, well, at least in the Western world, we prize accomplishments that lead to lots of money and lots of recognition. But we don't always value things that make our soul feel alive or help us to grow, help help us to grow as human beings, help us to grow and fulfill our soul's purpose in this lifetime. And I think that we do need to put more emphasis on that. It's not always about accolades. It's not always about a paycheck. Sometimes it's about an experience that really enriches who you are as a human being. And so that's why I, I really relate to that quote. I thought it was really important for people to read. Keep talking, sister. I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's all true. I mean, and I, I and there's no better feeling than that. And that it just feels so good when you... Like, I'm glad that you, I'd forgotten about that quote, but I'm glad you, when you bring that up, because it's like that feeling that I had when, when you're about that quote, exactly that. I just go, this is a value we're doing. Has, and it's just, there's no better feeling. You know, we, we want money and things and things because we feel, you know, give us a high, but there's no better feeling than that deep kind of bellowing resonance of value and satisfaction than that that money the feeling of getting money is a high but that other feeling you're what you're quoting there is one of deep resonance internally that is can't be beat you know yeah i i think that if we don't have both i mean obviously like on this physical plane of existence we need money to survive 
And, you know, everybody likes to be recognized for, for things that they do. But if, if you don't have that inside stuff, it's like, you're, it's like you're constantly trying to fill up a bucket that has a hole at the bottom. Well, that's what it is. You know, you're trying to fill that thing. Whereas the other one, the quote you're talking about is something that's rising up from within, where the yes. other one is fill it externally. And um, so, yes, of course, having both would be good. But the problem with it, getting the external things is, is it becomes, you know, addictive in this way that just wants to be fed. It's like a monster with fame is a monster that wants to be fed. Money is a monster that wants to be fed. I need more, I need more, I need more. And, you know, that feeling, the internal sort of sense of value is achieved differently. And as it, we become hungry for more of it, but it doesn't necessarily deplete as it's yearning for more. You know, you just sort of, it, it multiplies as opposed to sort of like a fire burning through things. Yes, 100%. It's hard to achieve, of course. It's hard to sort of achieve and whatever. So, so when it happens, it's well, I think at times, certainly. So when it's happening, it's important to be able to recognize it when it's happening because it's, there's so many times I was happy in hindsight. And I didn't know, it's taken me a long time in life to realize, oh, I'm happy in the moment. And, you know, I will often look back and go, oh, God, I'm so happy then. And I didn't feel that way at the time. Yes. And, um, you know, so as I, gotten older i've kind of gone no this right now this is this is good right this is happening right now and of course that's a very precarious feeling and a very vulnerable making feeling and we and so then i kind of clamp that down because you feel very vulnerable and exposed when you're just this is so nice right now <laughs> you know and that but that's where it's at you know as sam cook would say but anyhow yeah i mean and that and, and on the camino one of the beautiful things is so much else is dispensed with and discarded all you're doing is walking finding food and finding shelter which are easy to find so it's not like you're scavenging but that kind of feeling of value and internal kind of thing comes to the surface much more readily and accessibly than it does in daily life when we're constantly being bombarded with things it's yeah. sort of walking in the community is sort of an inside out job you know, you know I, I often sometimes when I'm sitting in traffic, if I'm going to pick up my son from school or if I'm if I'm dropping him off and I'm sitting in that rush hour traffic in the morning and I wonder, I don't know, I get this weird vision in my mind of somebody being, let's say, in heaven or being in like the heavenly or spiritual realm. And then they're dropped down to earth and all of a sudden they're like this, like, ah, the noise, you know what I mean? Like the horns honking, the music, the screeching of the tires. And it's like, what the fuck? You know, and it because... I don't know. I feel like our world is so freaking noisy that you don't, sometimes you don't get a minute to come up for air and actually be in the moment as much as we all desperately want to be in the moment because we're just, we're bombarded with stimuli all the time. But I think a lot of the time we don't want to be in the moment. We want to escape. That's why people do drugs and alcohol. That's why people turn the music up. We want to, we want to change the way we feel and change. We want to change the moment a lot, you know, So we're desperately trying to find a thing, you know, we want to, we are being on our phone. Oh, let's change the way I feel, you know, and yeah. we don't want to be in the moment, you know? And so when it happens that we do, that's a moment to, to be able to recognize that I think super cool, but yes, I, I agree with you about the sound and I, the older I get, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a cliche that, that sound and noise offend me and yes. me in a way that they didn't when I was young. Where I uh-huh. fed on that cacophony, whereas now I just sort of crave silence. <laughs> you know, when I just <laughs> I just know that I'm old then now. <laughs> the hallmark of old age, yeah. <laughs> so you've made no secret about the fact that you and your father did not have 
the best relationship that you loved your father, but your father was, you describe him as a very angry man, brooding a lot, mood swings when you were growing up. And you kind of describe a rocky financial relationship and just just trouble in general throughout your life. Do you still carry a fear of being a quote unquote bad father or not not good enough father with your own kids? Almost like I want to have a better relationship with my kids than I than my father had with me. And I want my kids to think more of me than I did of my own dad. And is that is that like still a thing or or is that dealt with and healed? Well, you're right in all that. And to go back, you know, my my relationship with my dad healed when he was dying and I went to him when he was dying and I sat with him for those few weeks, you know, and my wife is one that said, you need to go see your dad. I was like, really? (laughs) Yeah. And I went because I wanted to be a better parent to my kids. That's why I went. I went selfishly. And to sit there with my dad and tell him that I loved him and that I was sorry I wasn't the son he had wanted and to just be there. And to see in him the fear, you know, that he'd always masked with anger. Because anger feels better than fear, right? Anger, you feel in control anyway. And so, so, but anger is always a mask for fear. Always, always, always. And so to see the fear in him, that was so liberating for me. And to hold his hand while he was dying, you know, that was a profound experience for me. And then very liberating. And so, you know, I think I mentioned the book, you know, we didn't solve our past. We just dropped it. Just just discarded it where it belonged, you know, and so that was such a joy. So now since he's gone, I'm very free to sort of love him, you know, in a way I wasn't when he was alive, when I was so afraid of him. So that's, that was a big change. And with my own kids, I think the Camino had a lot to do with walking with Sam. Not only the title of the book, but when I was walking, it, it, it freed me a lot from that because I risked in the many ways just being who I am, as opposed to being the dad who's got it down and got it sorted, just risk being not knowing and being a bit of a mess at times and being reactive and apologizing and then being vulnerable and being scared and just sort of being, this is who I am, son, you know, and to let him see me, you know, and I think he appreciated that and I appreciated him receiving me in that way. So it altered things. So I have less fear or anxiety of it disappearing the way mine did with my father. Okay. Okay. But that was the whole intent of the book, really. That was the entire, that was my intent for that journey. And then consequently the book, that was my intent for that journey. And I, and I've coming to see that that in me, it just relaxed me internally in a way that I, I did know I needed and craved. Has it completed the job? No, but it's begun to do it to a larger degree. Okay. I know that you were, you were raised a Catholic, right? I was raised Catholic. Yeah. I mean, I am long uh, walked away from okay. religion in my uh, youth. Yeah. I find it shocking that the Catholic church is still in business after all. <laughs> No, I do. I have to, the, the appalling things that if any other business had done what the Catholic Church had done, they would be long out of business and in jail. Every one of them. They so. have not. They have not fallen prey to cancel culture, right? <laughs> no, bought their way out of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, organized religion aside, in quiet, <laughs> in quiet moments, do you do you pray? And if so, who or what every do day. you you do pray? Every day. What do you pray to, or who do you pray to? In a certain way, it's none of my business, I feel like. I 
think if I could understand it, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be the thing I'm praying to. I, I um, you know, uh, I don't think that matters particularly. I just feel like there's some sort of connection to something, and I know I've known it when I feel it, and I've had moments of it in my life where I have been experienced the sensation of grace. When I walked the Camino the first time, and I had that moment in the wheat field when I was sobbing and realized how much fear had ruled my life. It was a moment of grace that I received. There have been other moments in my life when I've had that happen, and that didn't come from me. And that didn't come from, or maybe it came from me. I don't know what the difference is in the certain connection to whatever, you know. So yes, I do. I did. I think it's, I often feel like I'm praying up a chimney when I do. And I don't do it devoutly and in great, oh, I always thought as I got older, I would become more actively, have a more active spiritual practice, which has yet to begin. But the, it's certainly a question I'm always asking and conscious of, and uh I understand why religion is valuable to people. It's just not something that particularly I find solace in. And I'm not sure I'm looking necessarily for solace anyway. I'm looking mm -hmm. for connection to something. Right. You're part of something. Whether, you know, and that has nothing to do with being a loner or non a loner. You know, it's, there's something. I often feel, you know, I'm stumbling in the dark with it. And I think that's fine. Yeah, I think that's fine too. You're 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 connecting to something that you know exists, but you are humble. I don't even know that it exists. That's what faith is, right? We don't know that it yeah. exists. We don't know what exists. There are certain moments where I've had experiences of something that I know, and I've held on to them and dined out on them for a long time. Okay. If you could travel back in time and alter or change any famous historical event, where would you go to and what would you attempt to change? Oh my gosh. Or even just bear witness to in real time. Well, now that you're talking about religion, I guess the crucifixion would have been interesting. Um, you know, it's one of the things I loved about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the way Quentin Tarantino rewrote that moment in time. I thought that was so fantastic. I'm not a huge fan of his movies, but I thought that was fantastic the way he did that. And just sort of because that changed our culture in a very big way, that whole Manson stuff. I, I don't know how to answer that. I don't really think that way it's like that kind of when we go what four literary figures would you have dinner with i'm like Dude, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't uh, I, I don't know the answer to that sorry that's okay that's okay and what have you mastered so far in this lifetime and what remains a work in progress for you what do you think you've mastered and what are you still kind of struggling with or working on well this conversation should have told you i was all of it I'm working on, and <laughs> none of it. I don't know that I could say I've mastered anything. Jeez, that's kind of sad now that I, I never thought of it before. I don't can't think I've mastered anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's a, that's a real answer. What do you think you came into this life as Andrew McCarthy to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? Mm, the dance would be the same for both, and that's... Um, that fear is a phantom. I like that. I like that. I like that answer. Thank you. And <laughs> no, that's really cool. Thank you for a great interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. So there's another one for the books, folks. If you liked this interview and it really spoke to you, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, all of that good stuff. You can follow Andrew McCarthy on Instagram at Andrew McCarthy. 
and Andrew's latest book, Walking with Sam, A Father, a Son, and 500 Miles Across Spain is out now, and I will catch you guys on the next go-around. Peace.